Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My guest today is Max Romy. Max is a watercolor artist and filmmaker from Anchorage. He's joined us before to tell us about his creative style of using watercolors in his films focusing on the outdoors. Storytelling using pictures instead of words was born from his life with dyslexia. The last time he visited us in the fall of 2020, he was developing a six chapter project called Trailbound Alaska. Although the project has changed and evolved, he has finished one part of the film series, The Journey from Seward to Eagle River. Another one of his films, If You Give a Beach a Bottle, is a story that took him many years to tell and is a finalist at this year's Banff Mountain Film Festival at the end of this month. Max will also give us a preview of his next project, which is very close to home. Keep listening for more on Outdoor Explorer. This is Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. With me today is Max Romy. Max is a watercolor artist and an outdoor videographer, and he's becoming quite a regular on Outdoor Explorer. He always has some exciting projects that I'm interested in and that I think are really great for Alaska. And this is his third time on the show. So welcome back to the show, Max. So glad to be here. So let's kind of reintroduce um, you to everyone. Maybe people haven't um, heard you on the show before. I think you were on the show twice last year about the Alaska Long Trail. And then we talked about some of your creative projects, um, particularly at that time. I think we talked a lot about Trailbound Alaska, which we'll talk about some more today. Um, but let's, uh, let's talk about how you got to Alaska and really um, how you got into what you're doing, which was really um, a product of having a different learning style in school. Absolutely. Well, I feel like a lot of stories, at least that I hear of Alaskans is not so much how you got to Alaska. It's how you got back to Alaska. So often it seems like somebody, somebody comes here on a visit or they see something, or even they grew up here and then they left. And it always seems like a lot of these stories start with how they came back to Alaska. And I'm no different in that. Um, I, Uh, came here when I was 16. We moved up, ran for service high school, um, graduated, went to college, and then became a filmmaker and kind of took off around the world. I I worked with a lot of outdoor brands, and I was a freelance filmmaker for about three years, traveling, um, you know, about 100,000 miles in total, um, and just really just was able to have some amazing opportunities, the kind of stuff you would dream about, like traveling with like amazing athletes to places like the Azores or, um, you know, Germany or Norway and France and Paris and all of these wild places for work. But all of that just kind of led me back to Alaska. It's, it's funny, the more that I saw, the, the more I realized that there's nowhere like Alaska Mm -hmm. on earth. And every single new place I visited was kind of a reminder of that. And so really like all of that just kind of led me right back home. And so uh, right before the pandemic, in fact, I actually kind of quit that traveling lifestyle, um, that freelance filmmaking side of things and returned right home to Alaska to focus on more local projects uh, here at home, um, which is which is what I've been doing ever since. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you get in? How do you break into filmmaking? I mean, this kid from Alaska, like, do you just make those connections with people or you you had actually a pretty, I guess, significant film and you did a film on Mount Marathon a while back, right? 
That's right. Yeah. I, I, well, I don't know if I call it significant. It was significant for me at the time. I think I was only 19 when, yeah. when I first filmed Mount Marathon. But filmmaking is definitely a, it's a very new thing um, to be able to do it at this level. You used to have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment to, to make a film. It was very, very expensive film stock itself was so pricey. I mean, if you think how much it costs to develop a photo, developing film stock was just, um, you know, like tens of thousands of dollars just uh, in, in what we could fit into an SD card today. So I'm very lucky to be alive right now because as a digital filmmaker, you can, you can capture almost anything, uh, even with an iPhone. If you have a good enough story uh, and you are persistent, organized, you could make a feature film on an iPhone without too much struggle it's possible for anybody and the, the stories out here haven't changed either I mean there are still amazing stories around us and so filmmaking for me was a little bit of like an accidental journey I I uh, grew up dyslexic um, well I still am dyslexic but like growing <laughs> up it was <laughs> it was a little bit difficult and dyslexia is um, it's it means that I kind of have trouble reading and writing and it's not um, it's not anything wrong with my eyes there's there's actually 20 percent of the population uh, in the world is most likely dyslexic. It's, it's a somewhat of a spectrum, I believe. Um, and so I grew up very, very dyslexic. I really struggled with reading. I really struggled with writing. And it was really hard in, in middle school and elementary school and high school um, when everything is written in textbooks and you just can't comprehend it. Mm-hmm. You see the words, they go in and then you kind of get mixed up before they like hit that, you know, they hit that comprehension side of things. So I'd be reading things three, four, five times to like try to get what somebody else might get in a single reading. So it really just and, kind of set me back on that. Yeah. And, dys- and dyslexia, I mean, does it, it, it becomes visible to everyone around you and yourself, maybe about the time you start to learn to read. I mean, is it from, is it a, something that is from birth? Um, that, yeah. Yeah. So it's not, yeah, dyslexia, it's not contagious um, <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, it's, it's just kind of how your brain is wired uh, is yeah. how I've heard it described. It really is something that, um, that makes a lot of people more creative. Mm-hmm. I know there's something that has to do with the left and the right side of the brains that are slightly different. Um, although to be honest, like another side effect is that you can't really do lefts and rights very easily. Um, that's something I really struggle with, especially when people like turn left here and and I do, and it was wrong. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> often happens, but it's, yeah, dyslexia is, is something that is uh, sort of to do with the wiring of your brain. Mm-hmm. And I used to think of it as such a disability. It's, mm-hmm. it's really tough in a world of writing to to have that. It just feels like everything slows you down. Um, and it can be really frustrating. It can make you kind of act out and people could see this as young as six or seven. It really kind of starts to show when you do start to read, but it's always been there. It's just reading kind of like uncovers it a little bit. Yeah. And I remember, uh, that when I was young, my, my mom thought I could read. She was so excited about it because like I had been struggling and I managed to read this entire chapter book it turns out I just memorized it. I'd seen the pictures on the page and I'd memorized what the words were. So I could, she could point to a page and I could read it to her. But when she pointed to an individual word, I could not mm-hmm. because I had kind of figured out this way around it. And that's really, 
that's really uh, you know a metaphor for like how a lot of dyslexics move forward. It, it makes you more creative. Reading and writing are sort of shut down for you, and then because of that, you kind of have to figure out these other ways of moving forward. So oftentimes, dyslexics are much more artistic. They're much more creative. Walt Disney was a dyslexic. Um, Harrison Ford was dyslexic. He he learned all of his lines by listening to them on a tape recorder, which is far easier than reading. And so for me. Uh, I became an accidental filmmaker because dyslexia kind of shut down these storytelling paths for me as far as like writing and reading. I always dreamed of being a, you know, an author for like children's books or, or, uh, you know, writing long stories, but nobody could really see past the spelling mistakes. And so instead, uh, I really turned to filmmaking, which doesn't need any words and kind of you're able to capture all of those and you're able to share a really wild story without having to write a single word, <laughs> maybe just the title, which often I do misspell. And so, <laughs> but you have an editor now, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Well, my wife does, uh, yes. <laughs> like she really has taken on that mantle in a big way, but so like kind of going into filmmaking, uh, was really an offshoot of dyslexia and also of the people that really were able to be there and help support this, this kind of dream of uh of being able to tell these stories because it's it's tough to be a filmmaker it's mm -hmm. so much more work than you'd ever think every single second of film that you see is usually about uh three to four hours of work in, in the background so when you're watching a, a 30 minute film that's hundreds and thousands of hours that kind of go into it and then you have to look at those hundreds and thousands of hours again right to kind of choose what you're going to use so exactly you have like hundreds of hours and you just use an hour from that hundred hours right? oh yeah absolutely yeah, yeah hundred and just like little tiny snippets of like all of these little things but um yeah. it's really nothing that i expected to get into it really kind of has been accidental in a big way um and i think one of the first the first times that i really felt this way was um at the lusac library i think they had a, a show into the banff mountain film festival and i remember seeing that and just like we were going there before a cross country meet and uh, the night before, and I saw this like festival of these, these just unbelievable um, athletes doing wild stuff uh, all over the world. And living in Alaska, we have this, we have the mountains and it just felt like these films just got it. Mm -hmm. Like I remember seeing that and just feeling like I want to be part of this. I, I don't know whether it's as a, you know, as an athlete or like as a director or like whatever it is, I want to be part of this. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I uh, reached out to the, like the, the, the um, local kind of arts teacher at service, uh, Mr. Hinshaw, who like lent me one of the old cameras with the mini DV tapes. And then from there, it was kind of just like falling on my face again and again and again and again until I learned how to tell a story that was okay uh, and it's been a really wild journey uh, all the way back yeah so were you doing illustrations before you were doing filmmaking or did that come afterwards because you do these just amazing beautiful watercolors yeah that was definitely a part of the <laughs> growing up dyslexic as well um my grandmother's a really amazing watercolor artist and, and traveler um and and watercolors have been a really great crutch uh that have turned into just something so much more you can't misspell a painting which mm -hmm. is amazing and so for me sketching has has been a way to be able to uh get my ideas down on paper when i take notes they just don't 
it's just like I'm scribbling lines basically and so for me sketching and painting and visual arts have been a real uh, lifeline um, to be able to kind of getting these these stories and everything out I I think I would have been so frustrated as a young kid especially not being able to express myself or share feelings and art and arts um, have really just kind of given me a voice Mm -hmm. and um, I'm just now really seeing the fruits of that in a in a much bigger way I'm able to make the the films and the visuals that I wish I could have seen as a kid oh that's great man that's the dream you're living the dream it's true yeah yeah it is it is definitely and then I mean a a big a big part of that too is um it is just like the community support like I'm really I'm really realizing that none of this is possible without um without a community that supports arts and artists. And I think, I think Alaska is possibly the best example of that I've ever, I've ever felt. Mm-hmm. And we're, and we're kind of forgotten up here. We're still forgotten after all these years, like we're, you know, out here by ourselves, but we've created this amazing community and these amazing arts and different people coming from here that are making a real impact on the rest of the world. So it's really exciting to see, I think. <laughs> I would agree, but I don't think actually, I don't think we're forgotten. I think, uh, you know? I think Alaskans, no, I think I think Alaska supports arts in a way that is totally different than anywhere else. Um, you know, like uh, Austin has country music and New York has Broadway and California is Hollywood. But like Alaskan artists have Alaska mm-hmm. and it's in everything that we do. It's it saturates the art up here. And I think I think the artists are able to to kind of create and share that inspiration like nowhere else. And, and I'm, I feel like I'm just kind of dipping a toe into it. And there's people that have been doing this forever. Um, not to mention the people that have been doing this for the last 10,000 years. Right. Exactly. Uh, and I feel like, I feel like the world just hasn't realized it yet. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe part of the art scene up here too, is this kind of unique connection to the outdoors. Like so much of our art is around the outdoors, you know, even, thinking about the people who have been here for 10,000 years and what we think of as their art now, the, the clothing they wore. And now even, you know, you think about cuspics and everything, they've become a form of art, not just clothing, but a form of art that's really kind of unique to us. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak too much to that. You know, that's, that's, I mean, tradition and the arts up here have really like, you know, they've, they've laid the groundwork um, for, for so much tradition and, and connection. And I think that we're just kind of scratching the surface of that connection to, to this place. I mean, I, I feel like community, community feeds creativity in a lot of ways. And that creativity kind of helps find the inspiration and then inspiration helps connect that community. Mm-hmm. I really do feel like it's sort of the cycle that, that really turns. And in Alaska in particular, um, you have this amazing community that supports the outdoors and arts in this really interesting kind of connection. Um, and, and it's something that I've certainly been inspired by. And I really do feel like we have a great support network up here as well um, between grants and um and just individuals kind of looking out for each other. There's like this deep, like Alaskans take care of Alaskans, but I feel like Alaskans also take care of Alaskan artists. And it's been really cool to kind of see develop. Um, and certainly something I never would be able to have done any of the filmmaking uh, without, without that kind of support and help. Mm-hmm. 
So last time we spoke, we talked a lot about, I think, uh, Trailbound Alaska, which was this big project that you're still working on. And at that time, you called it your pandemic project. Um, and at least that's what I have in my notes from last time. <laughs> and you were kind of retracing history in search of lessons from Alaska's past. That's what I, I think maybe you had that on your website or something. Um, so you were recently gracious enough to send me a private link to the um uh, the one that is completed now, it is, this one is completed. The one from Seward to Eagle river, right? That piece of it. Yeah. 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 So the loose idea was to kind of try to retrace, uh, some of these really long trails in Alaska. Um, some that are forgotten, some that have kind of changed a little bit and running from Seward to Eagle river. Uh, through the historic Iditarod Trail was something that we tried to tackle last summer. And it really was pretty humbling in a, in a big way. Um, it, it is a, about 150 mile trail that existed um, long before you know, European, Europeans ever arrived, but uh, had, was kind of coined and blazed in about 1908. Um, and and since then, it was it was really kind of one of the main trails to kind of get into uh, the interior, um, into Iditarod and, and beyond. And like a lot of trails, it had this really amazing history and then kind of just faded a little bit. And in fact, a lot of pieces of it are the Seward Highway. And so since then, uh, Dan Seavey and a lot of the trailblazers um, and, you know, a huge amount of people have worked really hard to create a to kind of create a trail that people can walk on, not just drive, that connects these places. Still missing a few pieces. We gave it a shot. Um, and there, there are some big pieces that need to be worked on. We're talking like type three fun. Type, type one is like where it's fun. Type two is where it's maybe a little bit rough, but like you still had fun. And type three is like where you don't, you don't really talk about it. And it takes a few months for it to kind of like fade in your memory before it becomes fun. There's a lot of type three fun out there. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's this amazing trail. It has this deep, deep history. Um, and I think uh, that one of the biggest lessons from trying to run pack raft hikes log along this was just how big of an impact community has on these trails and the, the effect of, of people traveling on these trails and kind of keeping them clear and well-maintained for hundreds of years um, in the same way that, that people have followed a lot of these trails for thousands of years before is, uh, is really amazing to, to feel that connection. Um, and also to feel like when it's been broken, it really shows you, shows you what was there and, and what could be there again. What a couple of things that I thought about was when you took that detour over to Whittier and then I can't remember. It, 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 you ended up on some trail or old trail that indigenous people had used to travel from, um, am I getting this right? Maybe I'm getting it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, um, one of the big takeaways is that, uh, basically anything in Alaska, uh, was done before is, is, a, is something that I'm kind of getting the sense of any trail or road yeah. or path that we've been on Alaska has been done before right. a very long time ago, uh, you know, by, by someone else. Um, it's just the, the difference is, is in how we travel it maybe and, and what the trail mm -hmm. looks like. 
whether it was people following migration paths or a well you know a well-trodden trail to a road um there's these kind of lines in alaska that have existed for for millennia and um and it's really interesting that it just kind of takes a little bit of scraping below the surface to kind of start to feel to feel a little bit of this um and that's that's really what being home in alaska feels like to me is that like the more you kind of look and experience and live in alaska the deeper it gets um i don't know why anybody ever leaves but i know uh, we we all kind of leave for a little while and then realize oh what were we thinking (laughs) and we come back because i'm right back yeah yeah that that hit me when you said that in the opening because um that's exactly was my journey too like i didn't think i wanted to live here anymore and then you you go outside and you're like no i really miss alaska (laughs) yeah there's some there's something about there's something about this place in a in a big way and like, you know, I'm 27. So it's not like I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> it's not like I have like a lot of experience to talk about. And I only moved here when I was 16, but, um, I, you talking to people who have been here for 60, 70, you know, sometimes even 80 years, it doesn't really seem like they've found, they've filled up on Alaska either. Right. I, you know, a couple of weeks ago and we're talking, so yesterday was, um, indigenous people's day. And so we're talking the day after indigenous people's day. So walking these trails, the, the indigenous people of Alaska walked is, is I think this is good timing <laughs> that we're talking about it today. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Aaron Leggett and he was, he's the chief of the Klutna tribe, the president of the Klutna tribe. Um, and he also is the, um, uh, the indigenous cultures, um, director at the museum. Um, and he talked about, he's Denina Athabaskan, of course. And he talked about how the Denina were, are the invisible people and that's what they call themselves. And it is, you go down to like the Southwest and you see lots of reminders of the indigenous culture down there and, you know, uh, hieroglyphics and things like that, you know, that you see or ruins, old ruins, but you don't see that here. But what we do have from the Athabaskan are these trails that they are the ones who put in basically. Right. I mean, that's what we're talking about. I think so. Yeah. And I think Aaron would be much more qualified to talk, talk of those things. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm very much the recipient and the, you know, I've, I've been able to benefit a lot from the work that a lot of people have laid down. I don't think we give nearly enough credit to the people who have come before in Alaska. And as someone who moved here when I was 16, um, I really think that that history puts far too much of an emphasis on the gold rush and Mm -hmm. kind of starts, starts Alaska around 1910, which is a shame because I do feel like, um, you know, people like Aaron have been amazing in, in sharing, sharing more of Alaska's true history, which is the thousands of years that came before 1910, um, and the thousands of years that will hopefully come after. And, um, and yeah, yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I, I'm not qualified in any way, shape or form, uh, aside from to say that, you know, being able to be on these trails and kind of to connect um, to the people who have come before um, in the smallest way, just by, you know, being on that trail and learning a little bit more has been amazing. And I very much look forward to learning more from from those people and and, uh, and who who have shared and have made that history. Mm-hmm. So when we talked about Trailbound Alaska last year, you were talking six chapters. So this is one of the chapters um, is the Seward to Eagle River Trek. 
Um, but you had some other chapters that you were talking about. And I know that you've spent a lot of time with Carol Sepalu because I think you were going to, or did you already do a short one on her, uh, on her, a light in Nome, a short film on her? Yes. So, um, yeah, well, <laughs> I wonder how, <laughs> like the chat, like I just like a good hike, it kind of seems like a lot of well-laid plans go awry yep. in Alaska and are replaced by something you could never have predicted, but is often much better than you could have hoped for. Mm -hmm. And this is very much one of those cases where I think I laid out six chapters of a plan to kind of travel through Alaska on these trails and almost from the start that has been derailed in, in the best possible ways. <laughs> uh, and as has kind of helped me kind of connect with a lot of these trails um, in very different ways. So the original plan was to kind of go basically Anchorage to, um, you know, uh, Nome from a connection of a lot of these trails. And so far we've gone from uh, Seward to more or less Anchorage. And then last winter I traveled from Anchorage to Talkeetna um, and then Talkeetna a portion of the way to Nome. And it's a, you know, lots of people do it by dog sleds, no machine. There's, there's even the ITI, which is, you know, bike and foot and ski. So there's lots of, it's not exactly like anybody hasn't done this before. Um, but the beauty of Alaska is that it's so big that every time somebody does it new, it kind of like is just another, another layer of this huge painting that is this really amazing state. So right now I am trying to <laughs> factor in how some of that works and looks um, and, and uh, and so last winter was um, Talkeetna to a portion of Nome, and uh, a lot of that was thanks to the help of Carol uh, Sapalu, who who I've run with and filmed a little bit over the last two years. Yeah, you two seem to have, at least from what I see on social media, this really amazing friendship. Like it's very inspiring. Your friendship is, uh, you seem very connected through um, both running and telling a story you know, her story is so important and, um, it's just, it's very inspiring to see your adventures together. Definitely. I think cre creativity in the outdoors is something that gets overlooked so often. Um, you have things that seem blatantly creative, like a person going outside and painting, or perhaps somebody writing a song about the mountains or even playing a song on the mountains. It's just when people think of creativity and its kind of connection to the outdoors, that's, like there's some obvious examples, but I think it's it's so much deeper than that. And um, Carol's a great example. She has been able to use the outdoors creatively as as a really incredible way to to share her message, to um, you know, to kind of um, do some really amazing things uh, in, in a big way. And, and she's she's much better at speaking to that than I'll ever be. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean it's. Creativity is so much more than than just creating something inspired by the outdoors. It's really a way that that people interact with these places. Um, and I think that often arts are seen as something that is extra, maybe. If there's time after gym class and science and math, maybe you could do some arts as if it's something that is just just for fun. But I think in a lot of ways, arts and creativity is is what gives us life in a big way not just in the traditional senses and um and i think that's something that i've been experiencing quite a lot of is uh not only did arts really help me find my voice 
as a young dyslexic person wanting to share the wild and amazing things that I was discovering outdoors, they help a lot of people um, cope and and find kind of passion and inspiration in a in a big way. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm I'm just realizing a little bit of that. And I think I think there's a lot of big scary things going on in Alaska, <laughs> in particular. I mean whether it's wildfires or, you know, melting, melting glaciers or things like pebble mine or polarization. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on and, and amid all of that arts can seem so frivolous. Um, But, but I think that they might be what really help us get through some really tough times Mm -hmm. in a big way. Um, And community is what makes all of that possible. Mm not just not just from the way they financially support arts through grants and things like that but um you know the reason we do arts is is to be able to share it with that community i think you are listening to outdoor explorer on alaska public media i'm your host lisa keller we are going to take a short break and when we return the conversation with max romey will continue you're listening to outdoor explorer on alaska public media Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My conversation with filmmaker Max Romy continues. Well, um, speaking about melted glaciers uh, on uh, this film, you follow, you used a hundred year old map to trek through this area and find, try to connect these trails and everything. And that was one of the, I felt one of the really dramatic, um, pieces of it was that all these glaciers had melted. And especially, I think it was Raven glacier up in Crow pass and how different it looked than what you saw on the map, like how much it had melted and exposed. So was that, Definitely. it was that, I mean, that was your first time over Crow Pass, wasn't it? Didn't it? it was, like I had not actually made it to the glacier before. Okay. Um, I had been, I, I had been toward Crow Pass many times, but the weather in Crow Pass is notoriously iffy. And so right, right. whether I'd been there and, uh, and didn't quite make it to the top, or I'd been there and there's a giant cloud over it. Um, I'd never actually seen this glacier. I'd only ever seen photos of it. And one of the main photos I'd seen was from 1911, I think. And it shows this massive glacier just descending right down toward Eagle River. And the map we were using was a printed copy of a map from 1910. So a lot of Alaska just has, a lot of it is very, very similar. Mm-hmm. A lot hasn't changed since, since about 1910, but a lot has. And one of the big things was um, the glaciers. Mm-hmm. You can see Byron Glacier and Portage Glacier connected and making it almost all the way to where the visitor center would be. Um, a lot of the mountains just like end because they're, they're in glacier or that the surveyors couldn't get to the top to see what was actually beyond them. And so we were using a little bit of a, an outdated map that, uh, that wasn't quite altogether um, accurate for uh-huh. how, how Alaska has changed. And so one of the biggest shocks was to get to the top of um, Crow Pass and to find what was essentially just like a missing piece of the puzzle. Um, and actually I take that back. It wasn't finding a missing piece of the puzzle. It was finding a piece of the puzzle missing. It's finishing the puzzle and yeah. <laughs> seeing that there's, there's a few pieces gone. Like you got it at Valley Village or something. And um, 
and there's just this this uh this valley that you could see that you could not see in the in the old photos in the map mm -hmm. and i i'd known things had kind of disappeared a little bit but it was absolute shock and so um i ended up staying there for about four days um just sketching this glacier um and and imagining how it would change or could change in the future um and at first when you see these things it's very depressing uh whether it's you know climate change or um you know like marine debris or something a lot of these larger environmental phenomena are are horrifyingly just gigantically uh depressing <laughs> it feels yeah, like we'll, as a, we'll talk about that in your next film in a little bit too because that, yeah that's yeah. the feeling i had it was very depressing <laughs> exactly it's it's a rough thing i mean like when there's something that has kind of been set in motion maybe a century earlier and and it's hitting you as an individual it feels like the whole world is on your shoulders you know the the polar bears are dying and the ice caps are melting and it's all on you and it's it's a lot and um and it kind of oftentimes is so hard to look at or scary to think of that i don't and i just kind of push it out of my mind and um sometimes you can't when you're staring at a glacier that you think should have been four times the size um all of a sudden it really it does kind of stare you right in the face and so what was really helpful for me was just sitting and sketching even though a lot of that was in the rain and pretty miserable um <laughs> but by by painting this glacier you really have time with it unlike just taking a photograph where you you know click a button it's there it's preserved it's exactly there when you sketch something you are you are looking more than you're more than you're um painting so you're really just observing this this giant chunk of ice for hours hours and hours and hours and you see these little subtle changes that you never would in a photo you see like something a uh, little rock slide or something change and you're literally watching the landscape kind of move around you and instead of finding it more and more depressing the more time i spent there i found that the more that i'm in these places that are experiencing this change the more hopeful and grateful that i become this has changed a lot. I would have loved to see this huge glacier back when it was miles longer, but I am able to see Raven Glacier now and it's still really amazing. And in a hundred years, it might not exist. You know, yeah. it might just keep on receding up the valley until it's gone. And that's a bummer. I would love to be able to show kids like, you know, the same wonder that I experienced, but I'm still able to experience it now and they might not be able to. And so to some extent, I feel super grateful to be able to to see these places, know these places, be inspired by these places, and then have the opportunity to be able to share that now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think Raven Glacier is an amazing example of that. It's still there. Everyone should go check this place out. It's absolutely incredible. And, and it will continue to be so for, you know, about a century. But um, sometimes, sometimes arts, for me, at least are the only way that I can process something so huge. I thought it was um, pretty appropriate that you found a piece of debris in the glacier, which is sad too, but um, that it really, and I don't know if I want to give that away, if people should watch the film to see this, but it, it was like, I was like, whoa, he found this piece of debris that really connects to what you do. Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, boy, yeah, marine debris, there's a tie-in. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here we go. I mean, it's like i mean on the on the side of environmental things um so 
it might seem totally dis like disconnected, but another huge aspect of of what I've been working on. Um, well, let's see. Hold on. <laughs> Scoot all the way back here. So, I mean, like on the topic of just giant environmental things, like Alaska is such a huge geographic place and covers so much area, which is incredible, but it's also really scary because there's a lot of change happening. So, um, you know, shortly after experiencing this huge, you know, this huge kind of glacial moment, um, we were on a boat. Um, yeah, so from from like an environmental standpoint, I mean, there's, there's so much of Alaska um, that it can feel so overwhelming to kind of see some of these changes. And I think that's, that's part of the reason why I traveled so much to start, you know, Alaska is so big. Where would you start? It's a, it's a big place full of a lot of amazing stories and just like a lot happening, but a lot of it is huge. It's huge mountains, huge, huge currents, huge, huge, everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was so much easier to travel elsewhere and tell stories that seemed not quite so significant as the giant things going on at home. Mm and so it might have been a little bit like looking back on it. I think I might have been running away from some of these things in some ways. But now that I'm back and have a sketchbook in hand, I feel a little bit more prepared to share some of them. And one of the big ones was marine debris. Um, it, it doesn't seem quite as connected to trails. Marine debris is basically ocean plastics that are washing up on Alaska's shores. Um, it might not seem quite as pressing as like glaciers melting or the amount of wildfires we have but plastics ending up on our shores is actually quite a huge deal um plastics don't yeah i I just have to say it seemed like a big deal after watching your your film i mean (laughs) i was i was i mean i had an idea of it because i've seen pictures and and maybe some news stories about it but watching your film and seeing how much plastic is on our shores and how we're catching all this plastic was just, it was horrifying. I'm not, I'm saying everybody needs to see this film, <laughs> but be prepared emotionally to, you know, kind of take a hit. Yeah, it's, I mean, so to, to give a sense, like um, uh, marine debris is, is ocean plastics often washing up on, on beaches for the most part. Uh, approximately 8 million tons of marine debris ends up in the ocean every single year. That is an un, like unbelievable amount of marine debris. Like I think a skyscraper weighs, you know, about 200 and something tons, maybe it's 2000 something tons. And 8 million tons is more plastic than you can really imagine. And that's ending up in the ocean every year. Um, some of it sinks, some of it floats, and a lot of it ends up on beaches. And the issue is you might think, oh, it's plastic, you know, it'll just kind of get buried. But plastic, plastic doesn't break up or it it doesn't break down plastic breaks up and so um a lot of this is sitting on beaches just slowly being ground down into smaller and smaller pieces and i'm not saying we need to just like get rid of all plastic um we we need plastic to survive but uh you know, and have our, the lifestyle we do, but the way we're we're treating it is not super appropriate because a lot of this is ending up on these beaches and it's getting broken down. And when plastic gets broken down, um, it just kind of gets smaller and smaller and it acts like sponges. It kind of picks up a lot of these chemicals. It might have chemicals in it already. And once it gets to a small enough point, then it kind of works its way back into the ecosystem. A bear swallowing a bottle is not going to be a huge deal. (laughs) Um, But the issue is then when the zooplankton and the the small fish and the the smelt and the fry um, uh, start eating this 
and it slowly kind of works its way higher and higher up into that ecosystem and sort of poisons poisons the shore and these shore ecosystems from the ground up and that's that's to some extent what we're starting to see now is the amount of plastics in the everything including people is is notable uh we're seeing plastics and everything from fish to like newborn babies it's um it's it's really scary because it's nothing that we've seen before um, plastics are really quite new in a lot of this way so and the amount that we're using is is a little bit horrifying so alaska in particular has a lot of these and uh, i was first introduced to it uh during a expedition to kayak island to volunteer to help uh, clean up uh, one of these one of these sites uh, where a lot of this plastic is washing up. Alaska's kind of uh, the Aleutians are uh, really on the edge of sort of the gyre. So there's this big spinning patch of garbage for the most part in the ocean. And it's almost as if you just put your hand into a washing machine uh, with all of the, you know, all of that clothes would just get like stuck right on your hand. It's the same deal with a lot of these islands. They're kind of just sticking out into this gyre. And so you have these places that have not seen a person for the better part of a year, perhaps totally remote. And they are, they look like a dump just a full-on junkyard. It's a bit of an eyesore. Um, amazing stuff does wash up too. You'll find glass balls, sometimes like lifeboats, parts of planes. It's it's wild, but it doesn't it doesn't make sense to find laundry baskets by the hundreds from Japan and from Korea um, or plastic rings from Seattle on these beaches that no person has lived on for centuries. And it's it's concerning because to some extent, it's a ticking time bomb uh, before it breaks down from this harsh Alaskan weather into something that will affect um, virtually every every species in Alaska in a big way once you give it enough time. These things are all cyclical, and when you introduce something like plastic, it's just a matter of time. So seeing this was really rough. Understanding it was even rougher, and then when it comes to like thinking how you can make a change it's absolutely overwhelming and i totally understand it i first saw kayak island about five years ago and it took me about five years to actually start to to be able to do anything and actually be able to start sharing about this because i didn't even know where to start and so last year um i guess it was this last summer yeah wow this time goes slowly here last <laughs> summer um we headed back out to Katmai, kodiak and a fog on another one of these cleanups where um grants help uh some of these boats um which are you know retired uh retired like firefighting boats or crab boats kind of go and pick up huge amounts of this marine debris and so with a good crew you can pick up almost a ton per day on these beaches it's just making a dent in it but you're picking up lines and nets and ropes and buoys and bottles and you kind of can buy yourself some time and some of these ecosystems because you can pick it up now by hand, which is great. Um, one hand could pick up, you know, 10 pound buoy or a, or a five gallon bucket. But then if you waited two years, that five gallon bucket kind of disintegrates into a thousand pieces or a styrofoam cooler, easy to pick up now. You wait 10 years, that is millions of pieces of styrofoam and you're never gonna be able to touch that. So, right now is kind of this really pivotal time to kind of buy ourselves some time you can pick up the big stuff before it becomes really really large amounts of small stuff and so that's what they were doing and so for me uh art was a way to try to capture and share some of this in a way that wasn't uber depressing <laughs> and that's and that's what i tried to do and so um i was able to with a lot of help create a short five minute film 
um, to kind of explain and share a little bit more about this issue. And, uh, and with that film, I then submitted it to some film festivals and was like absolutely shocked when I found out that it made it into the Banff Mountain Film Festival, which is this huge film festival that goes all over the world um, and was one of the things that I saw at the Lusak Library when I was in high school that really got me excited about getting into filmmaking. I mean, isn't uh, that crazy that that just that circle just came all the way around? Truly. Well, it's, <laughs> what the funny thing for me is that I saw that in Alaska in high school um, and I really felt that inspiration. And I thought that in order to be part of something so big, I was going to have to be somebody very different. Uh-huh. And so I had always wanted to be part of the Banff Fountain Film Festival. And so I, I followed famous athletes. I, you know, lobbied for huge budgets for some of these big videos lots of travel to some wild places but after all of that what it really took to make it into Banff was returning home and getting a zero budget film that was created off of just like the help of volunteers friends and family off the ground and that's that's what it took to reach those goals I think that's basically (laughs) Alaska in a nutshell is like anything is possible here um in a big way and 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 I think that extends not just to dreams of like getting into a big film festival or or kind of being able to share stories in a visual way I think that includes giant things like making a a difference on these big issues whether it's climate change or marine debris Mm -hmm. um Alaskans are really good problem solvers and like if dyslexia has taught me anything it's that obstacles just make you more creative and um we've got a lot of obstacles as Alaskans. And I think we are outdoors, creative people. And I think that's going to result in some really amazing solutions. So it's, um, it's been a bit of a, it's been a bit of a, a, a loopy trail to get here. But, um, but I think that for me, like creativity, creativity has unlocked a lot of doors, but I also think that, um, big problems are going to require some big solutions and that creative people and especially Alaskans are going to be the ones who can imagine those solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, when is the premiere of the BAMP Film Festival? This is a whole new world for me. I, I, I've dreamed about being in BAMP. I've never <laughs> yeah. been in BAMP. So. Right, because you're going to go, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's uh, So BAMP Canada is, um, is, is pretty beautiful. Like, you know, by Alaskan standards, it's like, you know, a slightly larger Klutna maybe, but um, <laughs> it's been hosted as like really, really big influential mountain film festival. So it's only a five minute film, but it made it in. So this October 31st, I think it is maybe 30th. Um, we're heading down to go check it out. It's oh, a slightly smaller weeks. one. This Oh yeah. Very oh, soon. Oh, yeah. Wow. wow. It's a slightly smaller one this first. year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a slightly smaller one, but it's going to be an amazing opportunity to basically go hobnob with some of these like big budget, fancy filmmakers, um, and hopefully yeah. learn a lot about what they did and kind of take some inspiration and then return right back to Alaska. Um, because I think I've learned my lesson this time that you don't need to travel far mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, to find the things that matter. I think mm-hmm. it really, it really was it, proof that. So, yeah. uh, and the difference that you have too, is that you don't have anybody raising these funds for you to put to, to get funds, to make these films, you have to go out and find the money, right? 
Right. That's the hardest part of filmmaking. Nobody tells you about is that uh, you basically work for free forever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's. <laughs> I think uh, musicians know that too. It's um, yeah. it's definitely part of that arts thing. But I've been very lucky in that I've actually had uh, quite a few grants to be able to support me on several of these projects. I mean, the Trailbound Alaska side was supported by the KMTA grant, which is the Kenai Mountains Turning an Arm. They they do grants up to fifteen thousand um, dollars to kind of support things in the area. They're amazing. Um, there's a local Anchorage grant that that was awarded um, and then a few brands have helped out and so it really uh, is is amazing the way that Alaskans can support you um, and I, like I have I have some cards at like uh, some local shops like AMH and Skinny Raven and and send some out online but um, yeah it's not it's not like Hollywood we have these giant investors throwing huge right. amounts of money but what we do have here is we have got like an amazing community mm-hmm. that that does support this uh, really enthusiastically um, in a way like nowhere else I've ever been or really seen. And so this is just really the first step. Um, it's been a dream for a very long time, but it's also a five minute film. And so, um, but it's a five minute film in Banff, which gives you more leverage on down the road. Oh, very much so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It really, it really does. It really does help. And, and like, if I was to give any advice to filmmakers, it would be, I mean, one, just get started. There's, Mm -hmm no one, no one will ever pay you to do something. They'll, they'll pay you to repeat something. And so oftentimes you really have to take that first step yourself. And, uh, and there's no better place or better time to start that right now. And uh, I think with, with filmmaking and creative things, especially, we kind of just, like I said, we see these as just extra. Maybe, maybe it's something worth extra. Yeah. But the other big part is that you don't have to be the artist, you don't have to be the musician or the painter to really make a difference. Supporting those people is a is a major deal. Um, whether you're a teacher or a parent or just a friend, um, the way that that a community encourages and and supports and um, really holds up its artists, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. And Alaska has been really, really amazing in the way that it's done that. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of hinting about, well, not really hinting, but you said the place, the place you need to be was home to kind of work a lot of this stuff out. And there's lots of adventures and stories to tell here. So uh, I know that you have some plans for this next winter that are very close to home. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I plan to lean in on that a little bit. Um, I mean, just with, with so much travel kind of under my belt, it's, it's really made me um, want to do a little bit of the opposite. I think that Alaska in particular is just a really, really beautiful, amazing place. And even, even at home, I kind of feel like I need to travel three hours to be able to see something new. But so so often, if you just kind of turn your focus locally, you'll, you'll be able to discover something right out of your door. And so my plan is to do the opposite of the freelance thing where you travel huge amounts of distances to take a thousand photos of like one one really quick moment and so instead my plan is to stay within an hour of anchorage um and capture places by staying there for a whole day maybe eight or ten hours and making a single painting so really the opposite of that and I'm, I'm very excited to see kind of what happens when you sit in one place and then watch the world turn around you so the loose plan is to try to paint at freezing temperatures um in alaska with watercolor 
I'm still trying to figure out how to keep the paint from freezing. The best thing that I've hit on right now is using um, like gin or moonshine instead of water, which <laughs> evaporates instead of <laughs> instead of uh, freezing instantly. So um, still a few kinks to be worked out. The other one is how like to make me not freeze. Um, that's that's like the weakest link right now, but uh, it's it's been a really cool experience to uh, see see the world change by just staying in one place staying home and um and kind of just opening your eyes to that well this is going to be a big departure because you usually when people see your films i think you just have this really unusual technique that i think is just so cool where you have this sketchbook and you watercolor in it what you're looking at and then you hold the the watercolor up to the view so in the film you're seeing both the watercolor and the actual what's out there and so you just kind of fit it in there and it's a very small um uh, watercolor so this is going to be a huge you're going to go really big on these right this is going to be a big change it's quite literally a big change people people don't like people don't see what artists see i feel um which is actually when i say that this seems kind of pretentious but like people <laughs> <laughs> it's, you can be it's... pretentious <laughs> <laughs> great all right i've got the past um i mean when somebody sees a piece of art in a gallery or a museum they they're just seeing like such a small piece of it um and frankly the the landscape does the heavy lifting as far as inspiration and you know and what actually matters we're just seeing this little tiny snapshot so even if it's a giant sydney m lawrence painting or you know a duke russell or you know some of these really amazing photographs or paintings like this is just this tiny little snapshot in the place and i think that's what alaska really has on a you know on a grand scale is like the stuff that inspires this and so for me it's always been really fun to to make the sketch in the place. And as the artist, you get to experience that whole world. Um, and so what I'll often do is I'll paint, say a uh, picture of the mountain, and then I'll take the picture of the sketchbook in the mountain. Um, so they kind of line up. So you can see the sketch being this little tiny puzzle piece of this big, big picture. Um, and so what I'm hoping to do is a little bit bigger of a scale of that. Although to be honest, no amount of paper in the world will be able to capture the place that is just you know, right in our backyard, but it's fun to try. That's for mm -hmm. sure. And so very curious of really capturing that process. I'm also very aware that when it comes to filmmaking, disaster is super fun to watch. And so unfortunately, I think a lot of this is just going to be the struggle of trying to paint a three foot by four foot sheet of paper in negative temperatures using alcohol yeah. uh, in, in somewhere that's freezing cold and miserable and windy. So I think, I think, uh, okay, <laughs> unfortunately, so I yeah. I have to admit that I did not connect. You're going to make a film of this. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. I'm also oh. going to capture this process. Yes. Yeah. Yes, no, I mean, yes. Oh, if, that's uh... <laughs> so cool. I did not connect that, but of course you are. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, if, um, if, if the art doesn't turn out, at least you can become the art. Yeah. <laughs> even, if it, even if it sucks. Um, and, well, and, we want some drama, Max, but we don't want some drama too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, I mean, like I said, the landscape does the heavy lifting and it also, it also, uh, it, it, if it doesn't want to be painted, it won't be. Um, mm -hmm. But capturing that process, I think will hopefully encourage others to kind of get out there. And I think if, if I'm able to do anything with, the art is hopefully to pay it forward and um you know like the inspiration that i took as a kid from a lot of other artists when i was struggling with reading and writing they really helped show me avenues out of that um and 
I don't know if any of these are specific avenues to kind of, I don't know if anybody should repeat trying to make a giant painting in the cold. Um, my experiences so far have been like a lot of frost nip and, um, and cursing, but, um, but I'm really hoping that by following a lot of these paintings and, and kind of this connection between the landscape and art, it, it encourages and inspires other people to be able to kind of take that step that I was encouraged to about 15 years ago. Um, and, and I'm also really excited to see the ways that art helps, helps us navigate some of these really big, these really big problems that frankly could just use a little bit of creativity to kind of get unstuck. Uh, so do you have any specific locations picked out yet, or do you want to keep those top secret? Um, oh no, not top secret at all. I mean, they might change though. Like you really can't control anything out here. Right. Learning to be flexible is something that I am uh, learning, but like, holy cow, like Alaska takes that to a whole new level. It's just kind of like, yeah. oh, you wanted to paint on top of this mountain? How about a blizzard? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, loosely I plan, I was thinking the turning arm would be really amazing to kind of watch the tide come in. Uh, one thing I really want to do is to not paint the shortest day of the year. Everybody seems to like capture the solstice the shortest day of the year. But I think what's so cool is it's actually the longest night of the year. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really excited to go out, uh, plunk myself down, build a studio out of snow and, uh, and capture the largest night of the year, uh, longest night of the year, um, by painting for, I think it's 14 or 15 hours. Wow. So really excited oh, to see awesome. what that could look like. Um, maybe get some Northern lights or just get totally socked in and just make a big mm -hmm. blank canvas. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, very, very <laughs> excited to see kind of that connection between the landscape and what happens when when you try to capture it for better or for worse well max it's been great having you again i'm really looking forward to talking about more projects in the future and finding out how this all works out and uh thanks a lot for joining me today i really appreciate it yeah well thanks so much for the opportunity and and um I'm just really excited to be able to give back a little bit to a community that's really encouraged me so much and i think this is just hopefully the the first small step of a lot more like it. Um, it's a it's a big place, and a lot of these problems aren't going anywhere. But neither are Alaskans. Well, I think we're really lucky to have you. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for coming home. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, it's okay. been a long time coming. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's it for today's show. Thanks to my guest Max Romy. On alaskapublic.org, you can find pictures and a link to Max's website where you can view a trailer of If You Give a Beach a Bottle. Trailbound Alaska has not been released yet, but you can find a trailer of Max's chapter film concept on his website. You'll also find a link to the Banff Mountain Film Festival, where you can find information on how to virtually view the festival from October 30th to November 7th. Good luck to Max as he pursues the competition at Banff. The show is produced by Eric Bork. My name is Lisa Keller, and from all of our hosts here at Outdoor Explorer, thanks for listening, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.